0: Welcome to the latest FT Advisor in Focus podcast. We know that there is a gender pay gap, and therefore there's a gender pension gap that needs to be filled. But we often forget that this lack of funding for women in retirement can also lead to a poorer outcome for women who need later life care. So how can advisors help women get on a better financial footing? And what is needed to help educate female clients much earlier in life about how to meet their financial needs later on in life. Well, joining me, Simony Kuriaku, Senior Editor of FT Advisor, to discuss these questions and more, is Ben Mason, Chief Executive of Kinherit, Will Hale, Chief Executive of Key, and Tish Hannafin, Founder of the Society of Later Life Advisors. Welcome all. So, why are the financial needs of women in later life different to the financial needs of men? I think I will start with you, Ben, if I may.
1: I think one of the main things that is screamingly obvious is, is the consideration of longevity, that that women traditionally have been living longer. And although living longer sounds great to many people, what can come with that is actually a poorer quality of life, life health-wise. Uh, all dementia statistics, just to pick on those, are very obvious that more women suffer dementia than men do. So, the financial considerations, the immediate one that comes to me is around, have they got the funds there for that for that long-term care? Should they need it? And also, if they do lead a long and healthy life, if they are living five, six, seven years longer than their male counterparts, have they got that money there for the extra five, six, seven years? So it all comes to longevity, be it a healthy life or one with illness. That longevity and that extra length of life, for me, is is the major consideration that, that, we, that I would start to look at.
0: Kish, I could see you nodding in agreement there. What would you like to add to that, please?
2: I I think Ben's absolutely right. Um, Longevity is, if you like, the, the, the baseline for why women may have different financial outcomes. And I think as we go through this podcast, we'll probably look at some of the wider issues around it, because, for example, it isn't just that women live longer on average. And obviously, everything we say is average, and that means that there are you know, women apply across a whole demographic, you know, background. But one of the things as a generality that's true is that women tend to be the ones who will stay home, for example, and bring up the children. Or if they don't, then they may work part-time. And they certainly, all the evidence shows are the people, particularly the sandwich generation, who take on caring responsibilities, say, for older members of the family, Um some of the statistics with that show that, you know, 49% of women are the ones who will be taking some kind of career break. And they will be taking it at a, so often at middle age when that's a key time for um, developing, you know, their own financial independence. So I think we'll probably explore that. But I think that contributes to the fact that um, when they get older, they perhaps don't have the financial security that they should have.
0: That's a very good point, Tish, about the sandwich generation. Because as we and I'm in, I'm in the sandwich generation. I won't say whether I'm the, the meat or the lettuce, but uh, I, I'm up there. And, and it is true that as you're starting to reach the peak of your earnings power, that is when you're starting to have caring responsibilities at either end of the yes. spectrum. So yeah, that, that that's definitely something that that we need to consider. But I'll just um, go to to Will. Could uh, I ask you to build on that, please?
3: Yeah, thanks, Emily. I completely agree with the points that, that Ben and, and Tish have made. I think just to sort of put some, some numbers on a few of those points. So um, a leading set of economists from the CEBR um, have sort of quantified that sort of gap in terms of retirement income and have found mm-hmm. that um, women earn over £180,000 less than men in their retirement Um, So that's taking into account pension income and and all other sources of income. So a significant gap there in terms of retirement income. Um, And also, to to Ben's point, looking at ONS data sort of from 2017 to 2019, the average age expectancy for a or life expectancy for a male is 79.4 years, whereas for women it's 83.1 so on average, a 4.3-year year gap. So you've really got that double whammy, as both Ben and Tish have talked about. You've got women earning less through retirement and also living longer. So it really is quite a challenge for, for a lot of women to, to navigate through that period of later life. And certainly, I think Ben touched on it, the care issue is one. Um, which clearly is gaining a lot of prominence at at, at the moment due to uh, the government sort of thinking about um, sort of how to pay for care in in the long term. But the the fact is that that women will live in care for longer than men as well. And that is incredibly um, expensive if if you need to sort of fund that yourself. So all of those factors sort of really go to to demonstrate that that there is quite a challenge to to be addressed here.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems that um, we need to be addressing these challenges. And I don't think it comes as any surprise to financial advisors because they're very aware of this. But it seems that many women just do not realise the lack of financial resilience that they have. Um, I feel that we are perhaps far more financially informed than we've ever been. And Mm. perhaps we're a little bit more financially independent. Um, but our resilience really needs to be built up. So um, if I could just ask what do you think needs to change to prevent this pattern being repeated over and over that women in later life are just less financially
2: resilient? Um, Tish, can I start with you please? Um, well there's a whole lot of things I think you could you could say could ch- should change, but in terms of what we practically can do, one of the things is it's really important, I think in financial services, you have a great opportunity to engage with women earlier. And, and by that, I mean, that's obviously easy to say and harder to do. But also, but one practical way is, you know, when you're seeing couples, it's very easy for sometimes the woman involved, particularly if the husband's initiated it, to step back a bit. And to, I mean, and certainly for a certain generation who their husband did all that kind of thing. And surprisingly, that is still the case. I mean, just anecdotally, I uh, three or four years ago now, I sat in on... Um, you know, behind a screen watching, um, a focus group of older women. And the really sad thing was that of these 14 women, I remember that 11 of them said the same thing. I wished I'd known more about what the outcome would be. And I think in rel- that particular one um, was about pensions. So, for example, a, a good thing to do would be to do more education with women around pensions. Whether you're married or not, because not everybody now, the, the demographics change, are married. What would happen if your husband died or your partner died? What would be your pension outcome? A lot of people don't know that. They have absolutely no idea. And they don't necessarily think about um, their own pension. And they don't, think, don't necessarily consider as well whether they should take some pension advice if they're deciding to step back from work for a while and work part time or give up work, you know, about whether or not they should or shouldn't continue to contribute. Anything around financial education for women, I think, and about taking that responsibility.
0: Mm. Um, Ben, I'm going to come to you. Um, Looking at that financial responsibility, you... uh did a presentation and you wrote for um, us at, on FT Advisor about how to prevent your daughters from becoming <coughs> deprived and uh, protecting their wealth from, I think, idiots was the, was the, was the phrase. Yeah. But if we just look at protecting women's wealth and helping women to become more educated about their wealth, um, could, I, could I ask you to build on that, please?
1: So what flies in the face of the stats with Will and Tish and I have already given is about women's liter- financial literacy. And I, I remember reading a piece in the FT and I've just called it up. It was on International Women's Day it was on March the 8th this year. Um, it's about a lack of confidence affecting women's financial literacy. Really good article. And it was about the confidence around literacy to decide to go and make decisions. So is that education? Is that background? Is that whatever? There's not, lots of play there. But what does fly in the face of that is that I can tell you our own studies with over th- thousands and thousands of clients, it is the women who drive end of life planning, who drive will writing, who are, talk about trusts and passing on next generation. Mm-hmm. So there is a weird thing there, which would be great to understand what has made men so wanting to know the financial literacy while they're alive and women have not, but women taking the lead full throttle. I would say it's probably 65% of, client, of couples that come to us are driven by the, the female in the relationship, maybe slightly higher when it comes to doing your will, trust and powers of attorney. I just say that because it's an interesting thought piece for, for, for the group and for maybe for listeners to go, well, isn't it weird that on one hand, there is a lack of knowledge. On the other hand, there's a huge push and 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 in, influence by, by the female member of the couple. But I, I'm just saying that because obviously you asked about the how we protect women's wealth. I, I will say to everyone... The answer is a trust, a trust, a trust. And if you're not sure, let's get another trust. Um, <laughs> it's all about ownership and ensuring that on death, we make sure that the wife or the deprived daughters I use in my example, because we talk about my own family and what I don't want to happen, that there's no one who can come into relationship, either a second marriage. I don't want anyone marrying my wife and taking what I leave behind in a divorce. If my when my wife and I pass away, I don't want someone marrying my daughter and taking what we leave our daughter. Now, if my daughter's got her own money and her own property and she gets divorced, then she will lose half of that. We understand. But I haven't worked all my life and continue to work and built this business for someone to marry my daughter. And as I always say, some idiot to come and take half of what I leave behind. So it's just important to understand that. And and the reason it relates again to women, especially women in, in later life, is that Women do live longer than men. Their husbands do pass away. There are more second marriages around for women because of the because of men passing away. And there are women then marrying again. The last thing we want is to see the woman in my life, my wife is Liz, marrying again in 10 years time if I pass away. And that new person divorcing her and taking half of what I leave. So it's also, as T- Tish said about, understanding pensions and standing income options And what goes wrong if you don't do it? Well, I'm saying, well, let's understand what happens if you don't have the right wills and trusts in place to protect what you do have. And that's a really important consideration.
0: Indeed. And that's a really interesting point to um, come on to, to Will, um, because it's often true that... um, Women tend to have have the greater ownership, outright ownership of homes in later life, whether through um, because they're they're single women or because their husbands have died. Um, Does this then feed through to women having to use equity release or to sell or downsize in order to fund later life care, perhaps because they haven't got, you know, haven't had all this trust planning or estate planning put in place? I mean, is, is that something you found at Key?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I'll, I'll sort of go back to the stats. If, if you look at um, the profile of equity release customers that that we see at Key, um, 57% of those are are couples, but then only 15% of them are single men and 28% are single women. So that very much sort of supports the the point you're making in that um, for women, the, the the property is a significant asset that needs to be taken into account as they sort of move through that that later life um, financial planning and, and I think again completely sort of endorse the comments of Ben and Tish I think as an industry um, we need to think about how we sort of engage sort of women earlier in their uh, retirement planning journey and how we engage them differently recognising that their needs may be different um, than their male counterparts and Think very carefully about the needs of sort of both parties within a, within a couple um, as well. But but I do think as well as as, as sort of the stats that I sort of relayed show that there's a great opportunity for financial advisors to really step in and help sort of women in that sort of latter part of their life. And I think it needs to be seen as an opportunity. And and the mindset needs to change a little bit from financial advisors to think more holistically about all assets not just think about pension investments, but think about the home and how that can be used sensibly to, to help customers sort of navigate their, their way through. So I think it, it, it does need some um, sort of significant changes from the financial advice profession in terms of how, how we engage with women and, and how we look to uh, uh, look after those needs very explicitly.
0: But, yeah, um, it's interesting what you say. I, I spent four years um, volunteering um, some of my time to help in a, in a care home um, when I was younger. And I noticed that predominantly it was women in the care home and most of them had been using their home. They'd sold their home in order to pay for their care home fees. Um, Tish, does this present perhaps a difficulty for those who perhaps wanted to leave money or assets to children or as an inheritance and how can advisors help women who need late life care not necessarily have to go down that road of selling the family home?
2: Never could anything be more topical than at the moment the discussion about whether or not we should all have a central pool for funding people so they can save their inheritance, which is one, not necessarily the only way to look at that. So, first of all, I would just go back to what Will and Ben said. Listening to Ben speaking about wills and trusts is interesting to me because, as you know, I'm a barrister and I specialise in uh, estate planning and Will talking about equity release – I think that demonstrates something that's really important, financial services, and we'll mention the word holistic. And why I say holistic is each piece of those advice may be excellent for women, but they would need to be done in some way that was a joined up way. For example, just one, trusts. Obviously, I'm a, a chairman in to the Trust, Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners. So that's a bit of interest to me. But with um A trust, for example, you would need to look at and recognise what would happen then if you wanted equity release and the house was held in a trust, perhaps for another generation, what kind of trust that is, whether or not that would preclude you from having a deferred payment agreement with the local authority, which is, to go back to that, another way in which people don't have to sell their home. So just to go back to your question, one thing that would be really useful for the discussion on social care is if we cease to talk about selling the home and remember that in the con- in that context, very often it's an asset. If you look at how many people move home in their lifetime, I am exceptional in that my husband was born in the sitting room of my house and his father before him, and my son will take our home. But that's because I'm in a farming family. Most people aren't. They move all the time. They're not trying to protect their home always. They're trying to protect that asset. And asset protection may well be equally achieved by something like by planning that all holistically and if you take the emotion out of a, out of the home that bit you know in other words it's an asset just like anything else um then the gut looking at for example you if you the question is do you accept you have to pay for your care yes or no and if you do then the question is do you pay for it during your lifetime or do you pay for it later and the deferred payment agreement for example is a way of saying you don't have to sell your home if that's what you want to be call it and I'm not saying you shouldn't be emotional believe me I'm not because I do understand that but if you look at it realistically well then you might sell it later so I think the real key thing for advisors is to say let's look at everything holistically the home is when you said a lot of people sold the home they have but that's where they haven't had any advice about other options I really do think there is. And also some of the people in care homes now, the move is definitely towards people staying in their own home and had they had the right kind of planning and the right kind of support might well have stayed in their own home, even with dementia, to a much greater stage. So I think there's quite a a lot to do around advising people, making sure, I know it sounds silly, but making sure they're getting all the benefits and things they can. And I would say with deferred payment agreements, remember that if you do those, you can use the rental income as well. So if protecting the asset, for example, because it will have inflation is valuable to you, you know, that's also an asset. So that knowing what all the options are is what financial advisors can do best. Indeed. And um, Tish,
0: if I can just stick with you for a second very quickly. Um, people often think, well, if we are having someone come in to my mother's home or to my father's home to look after them, it's not going to be that expensive. It might not be as expensive as staying in a care home, but but it does have a lot of cost, doesn't it?
2: It, it, it's a really good point to raise that because one of the biggest fallacies of all is that care in your own home is not is a cheaper option. It absolutely isn't. And I mean, we'll will be able to comment on that about how with equity release. Sometimes that can be useful to help bridge the gap between the money you've got if staying in your home is your priority. And believe me, I really support that. When I talk about it's only a house I'm talking about for the next generation, for the people that live there, it's everything. So, yes, it's a much if we could all as a finance, I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, obviously, I'm a lawyer, but if all financial advisors could just once have the conversation about it isn't meals on wheels and someone popping in, that doesn't happen anymore. And at the highest end of need, if you truly want to stay in your own home right the way through, that cost will be as much and often more than a care home. The difference is. That it won't be a catastrophic cost. It's happened overnight. It's for people that are gradually building that up. And that's where financial advice all the way through to say, OK, but what about the next option will really help.
0: Indeed. I think this is a good uh, time to go to Will. Um, Will, I understand sometimes equity release is used to modify the home and to put in those home improvements needed for, for care.
3: Yeah, Tish raises a really important point. I think helping people stay in their home for longer is a is something that we should all strive to do. Again, it's been proven by a number of studies that 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 people tend to live in better health for longer if they are able to stay in their own home. But that does come with costs, and we are seeing equity release um, being used to both adapt the home for 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 later life living and. You know, that might be downstairs bathrooms, it might be stair lifts, it might be a whole whole set of different things. And it's it's really important that, that homes are made um, sort of suitable for, for that later life living. But but also it can be used as, as Tish said to, to actually sort of fund ongoing Care of people coming in and, and assisting, and and to step that up, um, you know, as the needs increase over time, and you know, we're lucky that modern equity release products are very flexible to allow that through through drawdown mechanisms and uh, and, and and other benefits to allow that to, to be used in, in in that sort of flexible way. Um, the other point I was going to come back to, again, it's not the term I like, but the, the holistic approach is is so important in this space. And it's, it's not just about one advisor thinking holistically. It's about sometimes working um, as a collection of experts to make sure that the result is, is delivered. Um, and also when we talk about holistic advice, it, it's not just advising the individual, but talking to the family as well. And, and that is absolutely critical to get the, the right outcome. Again, again another stat to throw in because we were talking about sort of uh, sort of inheritance and gifting but it's interesting that of the single um women that that, that that go through equity release about a quarter of them are using some of that money to make a gift to a family member through the process and and that shows hopefully that there's some um, Sort of good intergenerational sort of thinking um, going on in in that context, and and that's where again advisors can add real benefit to, to making sure that the family are all uh, on the same page as to the plan that's um, trying to be achieved and the implications for each party in that process, whether it be um, sort of what is gifted um, sort of before death or, or what the implications will be on the estate post death. So. Again, I, it's a really challenging space and, and, and that's why I, I say it's so important for me that you you have experts across estate planning, across um, equity release or later life lending, across pensions and investments, all working together to ensure that the right overall plan is arrived at for, for the different individual and their family.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, need lawyers as well, Tish. Um, <laughs> um, but there's it's a... There's <laughs> lawyers and accountants let's let's bring in the whole professional partnerships to work here but if i can just come to to ben um ben we're looking at how we can all work together with estate planning um equity release legal representation this is not just about building up your investments and creating the right pension plan this is about um you know we've already said we don't really like the word holistic but it's probably the most appropriate one here holistic advice using lots of different professionals. Um, I saw, I saw you nodding when, when Will was speaking. Can the, the, re- I... the
1: reason we don't like the word holistic is because too many poor advisors use holistic because they didn't know what else to call themselves. Will's laughing and Trish is nodding because that's the truth of it. The word holistic was perfect because that was right. But too many people who aren't very good have used it in the past. and It's sort of lost some of its value and meaning just to be very blunt. But I want to say that Tish has nailed it on the TED. like So it is you and I can maybe have a very, very boring conversation one day because yeah, we don't my, need
2: to call anybody else. No,
1: you're yeah, all, all of my team are step. So every single person here at Kinherit, every single, adva- single advice is step qualified. And that's so important to us.
2: It is really important.
1: There's, there's so many people out there giving very poor advice because they're not step qualified. They don't have that depth of experience to look right. at the whole picture. They just go in, they've got in their mind what they want to deliver and they just try and deliver that and fit it to the client rather than look at the client and understand the law. Um, And that's why it's so important for me. I'll always say to use a step-qualified person. And what Will was saying, which was, is that everyone should be working together, but they're fearful of doing it because they're worried about maybe losing their client. Rather than going, do you know what? I'm going to find a great team to partner with, a great company to partner with that I'm comfortable with. And by providing the extra level of quality of service for my clients, I'm going to get back more in return but there's that fear and trepidation of losing people, losing clients, and it's it's not it's not really in the client's best interest. And I think that we see more advisors try and have that holistic approach of working with other people. That that that's really what we need to see from it. And to somebody's greater point. It's where you divide FP and EP, financial planning and estate planning, you can argue that a 30-year-old couple with one child and, and just on the property market, they're much more FP, they're much more financial planning. They're growing their amounts. They're growing their accounts. They're growing their net worth. They're growing all of that. What's it look like when they get to 50? Well, now maybe some more estate planning has to come in. And as they get to towards 55, 60, 65, 70, more and more estate planning considerations should be given. And I just think that maybe some of the industry is a bit too weighted towards just pure FP. So you get these people and Tish will see it every day as will Will from a lesser extent, but Tish and the solar side will see it every day. These people get, get in front of her and her clients and her, her solar members and we see it and they've got, they're rich. They've got lots of money, lots of things to pass across but they've started to leave it too late to do the proper estate planning. And there's only so much we can do when husband or wife has already passed away and someone's now ill. You need to put those considerations for financial and estate planning together as you move through that financial journey in your life. Because otherwise you could find yourself having to make poor decisions or even worse, having no decisions to make because you've just got no opportunity to do something. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're we're all in absolute agreement. And um, Ben, I think actually we could talk about this a, a lot more. But um, sadly, we've actually come to the end of the time for the podcast. But um, I just really want to thank you all, Tish, Ben and Will. It's so interesting to have people on here with your level of specialisms and coming from your backgrounds, um, because it's true, we can't just focus on financial planning. We also have to consider estate planning, And that will help everyone, not just women, but everyone make that transition from building up wealth assets to protecting wealth assets, to being able to use those in later life, not just for providing an inheritance, if that's what you want to do, but also caring for those later life needs. Um, Ben, Tish and Will, I just want to thank you so much for talking to us and to thank everyone for listening.
3: For more news and
0: views, stay on FTAdvisor.com. Take care.